Um, quite a lot of uh, what uh, we find ourselves being with is a residue and a momentum of what's gone before, either in our personal life or the impact of our um, parents and family, our culture, our tendencies. And so, a while there are moments, blessed moments, <laughs> where there's a there's a, the mind, the nar- internal narrative, and some of the uh, dukkha that we might be with from what's gone before, and that subsides, and there's openness and space and clarity, and um, some of the beautiful insights. Kilisara is pointing to in his last few talks the ground of being touching into peace this is the foundation of awakening having moments of tasting that realizing but also a faith to that Um, and yet of course for all of us there's a lot of um, just quite hard work containing and being with uh, this momentum, this residue, what the Buddha called Sankara, Sankara which literally means that which is put together. So Sankara is uh, that what's uh, patterned or conditioned, Sankaric material which is shaped by another Buddhist word, anusaya, it's an underlying tendency towards, sort of sometimes even subliminal or unconscious or ancestral, cultural, genetic, karmic anusaya, the the sort of deep flow and tendencies that that um, shape these these patternings, these sankara, the conditioning that we receive through our family, through our culture, which is very impactful. And through our own personal karma as well, of course, because whatever uh, situation that we are born into, those of us that have siblings will will realize we will share tendencies and shared experiences but there's also very unique lifestyle and choices and manifestation and personality so everyone has a very unique combination of conditioning as well even if we're exactly the same context that we're born into so all of this is quite complex of course all of this uh, layering this, uh, this uh, layering of our conditioning and our patterning. Yeah. Perhaps a, a contemporary analogy could be that the, the mind or the jitta, the heart, this profound subjectivity, this aspect of mind which is profoundly subjective. 
the jitta, that which is uh, ex- um, receives impressions, and that which we most intimately feel is the I. So exactly the I as the self structure, although the self structure is patterned, if you like, onto the jitta. But even beneath that, that sort of the amness, the sentiency that's that's an aspect of the jitta. It's almost as if that was, as just an analogy, but like a computer hard drive with nothing on it, completely blank. And then we download programs to run an operating system. And so this self that we experience ourself, the sankharas, like the programs that are sort of downloaded into this. Um, fundamentally pure or spotless mind, heart, jitta. And so when we come to sit, when we come to meditate, and we open the mind, particularly in this vipassana, and and also the, the focus deepens, container and the safety helps hold us and we can begin on some subliminal level begin to relax out of our defences a bit more that we use to negotiate a more harsher environment, more complex environment. Then naturally for all of us, these sankara, these patternings, these tendencies, particularly those that are not so easy to be with, will become more conscious to us, more apparent to us. Some will come to us that are also very um, positive, that also can sometimes be um, subdued or not very conscious to us. Positive energy, natural sense of curiosity and courage, like those energies we had, if you remember, quite a while ago when we were children. That sort of buoyancy, open-minded curiosity, not so so layered with the strategies that we learn to cope with. But also many painful sankhara will come. And this also is a fruit of the practice. Sometimes we think, oh, the fruit can only be uh, peace and all the good qualities we'd like to um, associate with. But we must also understand that when some of these deeper sankharas appear, and they appear as painful or stuck or confused um, or connected with old stories, that this also is is a fruit because it appears in order for us to bring our awareness and our compassion and our patience to it. Because these old patterns are looking for release. They're looking for a way out. They're like beings that get stuck when we react to them and then we press them down or we're socialized out of really being able to feel some of the things that we need to feel. Grief or rage or just where we've got hurt, all of us get hurt in the relational field, it's inevitable. 
betrayed, hurt, whatever. Our loneliness, our lack of worth, our, our difficulty in feeling safe or belonging, these sort of quite primary places where we experience a certain wounding. Then the structures of the self layer over to, to, in a way, to help us avoid feeling those feelings. It's a, it's in some ways, it's a very um, part of the, the structure that is trying to help. But in fact, it's not ultimately that helpful because to release what is not easy to be with, we sometimes have to feel what's there and be with what's there. So it said that sometimes these sankharas that appear, and I know um, I, I don't know if this is actually from the suttas or whether I remember it from Goenkaji and those retreats that that um, I used to attend once upon a time. And it's a very useful analogy where he talks about sometimes when they appear, they're like lines, line, a line drawn on the water. It just comes for a moment and then you see it, a feeling of irritation and you see it and it's like, oh, it's not a big deal and it just dissolves again. But then something else, maybe something triggered or some old, quite difficult thing comes up and it's like a line, it's got more energy in it, like a line drawn in the sand. It has, it's, it's a deeper groove in our patterning that the energy, the mind's energy goes down, has gone down and it creates this deeper kind of residue usually connecting with some sort of emotional um, feeling tone that's hard to be with or that we don't want to be with but it may appear, maybe it's there for a day a feeling of depression or a feeling of sadness or a feeling of confusion or lossness disconnect self-aversion but then you know the next day you feel quite buoyant again and it's sort of past so it's not too much of a problem but then some of these sankharas are like lines in rock they, they have their strong impression and some of these are to do with very very early conditioning before sometimes we even speak things that we learn about when we're very, very young, even actually sometimes pre-birth. We don't have cognitive frames to filter our experience. We don't have perspective. There's just, we're just feeling beings. And those feelings are often quite sort of what we might call quite primitive around issues to do with survival and safety and and need and nourishment these are these are all quite uh, deep areas that are subliminal to us often but they can affect our uh, feeling tones that we might experience shaping the shaping of the self the shaping of our being in certain ways so it's inevitable as we start to soften and open and become more present that sometimes we might experience some of these quite nebulous 
feeling tones and, and even connected with quite strong emotional material or perhaps even story or narrative or maybe even not because they're, they're, they're so old or so early but they're disconcerting um, and we would like a cognitive shape but we can't quite grapple with that but they appear, they can appear within the field of our awareness and so it's important to know if that is part of our experience that that's okay that that actually part of our compassion practice uh, which is the other side of the the insight practice and the wisdom practice is to when when Kedisara talked about this morning Kuan Yin or Avalokiteshvara sees deeply into the nature of all conditions and sees the fundamental emptiness or the profound suchness at the heart of this moment, the heart of every condition, and dwells such, unmoving. But Kuan Yin and Avalokiteshvara, though, is is the uh, pinnacle of wise insight, is also seeing is also connected as a, as a metaphor for compassion, is the bodhisattva for compassion, so is also seeing through the eyes of compassion. So it's not only touching what we see and what we're with through insight, you know, just through mindfulness, just like a investigation, but that investigation and that mindfulness and awareness is needs to also... Uh, we need to also be able to touch what we're with, with, with compassion, with, with gentleness, with mercy, and not the usual way that we go into judging or critiquing ourselves or, or, or assuming because we, if we feel what we feel that something is wrong or we are bad, but rather to see that, that this is an opportunity for us to, as a... Our monastic teacher Ajahn Sumedha would say is to um, welcome the orphans of consciousness. So these parts of ourselves we don't want to be with, memories, parts of our family history or whatever appears for us from our cultures. It's like they they come up for air. And like, you know, we go, oh no, and then slam them down into the dungeon, you know, bad, bam, shouldn't be. And they, and they get trapped. So we can see, you know, if these sorts of experiences happen, you can see these are like beings looking for salvation. The salvation of, of, the, of how, how what, what actually helps salvation to happen. It is this profound activity of witnessing with compassion and non-judgment. So we can touch those places in ourselves that uh, really are, are ultimately sort of stuck energies, like painful places. We can touch those 
in that way, then we can also maybe have moments when we can touch the world and others around us from that place. It's more difficult to do in the moment sometimes when we're activated, but that's why we practice. So the Buddha also gave this very useful analogy for this compassionate dissolving and releasing of um, the momentum of what's gone before, the karma of what's gone before as it touches us and gets activated or awakened or appears to us. He said it's like um, sometimes these things that come up or that we're with that are difficult to be with, he said they're, they're bitter and like a lump of salt. Um, it's not as hard to digest if you put that lump of salt in a small glass of water you can't really drink that water, it's too bitter and yet if you put that same lump of salt in the in the uh, fast flowing river Ganges then it was more pure than it is now <laughs> but if you put it then then it would dissolve you could take a sip of the Ganges you wouldn't know it was even salty so in the same way so that if one who is well developed and in wholesome states of mind well developed in awareness of body well cultivated in these uh, parameters, these spiritual qualities, in the qualities of heart, of compassion, all of these aspects that we're cultivating in this retreat, including in the yogic air practice we've been doing of, of, of um, withstanding in the posture, the intensity, to build little by little some capacities that it's, it's a bit like that, that if, a, if a tendency arises for whatever reason that is unwholesome, it's a bit like that or difficult or could potentially activate us into, into a difficult state. It's a bit like for one that is well developed, it's a bit like it arises within the flow of the Ganges. There's a lot that can help dissolve that construct, that sankara takes the power out of it, dissolves more quickly. But for one that is undeveloped in heart, in body, in awareness and so on, that same kind of, can be activated, same kind of unwholesome state or bitterness or difficulty. And it's, as, and it's like it's if it drags that person to a very difficult place, a hellish state. They can't escape it. They have no choice. They're just suffering and caught and maybe then very reactive. So we understand this and we know that, that in this practice we're going to be a big part of it. A big part of it is just going to be learning to come into relationship these dimensions of our being and our experience and of life and of the world that aren't easy to be with. But we are, in a way, helping bring those pieces back into, held with this awareness, into this flow 
the deeper flow of the Ganges, this deeper flow of the current of the Dharma, to help them, not only for us personally, but this whole ideal of the Bodhisattva, cultivation of the Bodhisattva heart is ultimately to also help hold those uh, bitter places for our family, our ancestors, our community, our country, and this world. It's a real act of compassion not to add more suffering where we would be very tempted to, and quite right to, through our judgment and reactivity, but in the wiser place of us to be able to hold these sankara, these patternings, small and huge, with uh, merciful compassion. In the same way someone like Mr. Mandela did for this country, in a very critical way, but could do so because he had a very fierce training through his incarceration for so long to withstand. Talk about someone that learned to withstand limitation without completely going into profound bitterness or hatred or insanity, which could very well be understood, but developed instead this, turned it into a profound um, wisdom and compassion and therefore had the capacity to hold the bitterness of uh, what had um, come to fruition through all of those years of sort of legislated madness um, that, that we know the story of perhaps not all the stories we don't know all the stories but we know the main narrative of the colonial apartheid story is very bitter fractured, divided traumatised complex crazy making you know, to come into the midst of that and be able to hold that salt crystal in the flow of something more profound and to trust that I mean that's a great act of something that's possible for us as human beings and he didn't start like that (laughs) but he was able to come into that fruition and so it's a great uh, example for us and many examples in small ways people we know a moment of kindness and touch us, our friends, our loved ones, our parents. And then in very big ways, these great beings that help transform pieces of history, not in through violence or continuing more fracturing, but through these great acts of mercy and compassion and humanity. And it all starts, it all starts here in this heart, in this practice. So this is why the Buddha said in that great um, teaching he gave to all the many uh, enlightened beings that gathered before him on the, what's still celebrated to this day, 
There's Marco Puncha in February, July. Sometimes the full moon of March Full moon of February. So it's one of the holy days in in um, Theravada Buddhist countries, Magga Puja, Magga being the month of February, um, Puja uh, uh, observance. It commemorates uh, a, a moment in the Buddha's life where the full moon of February, or Magga, he um, gathered with his disciples. I don't suppose he sent out an email, but somehow they knew to gather that the Buddha was going to pitch up, and apparently all these, called arahats, but all these very wise, enlightened, mature practitioners came to sit with the Buddha that night, to practice with him. And you'd think, well, I wonder what kind of teaching you would give to a group of awakened beings some sort of very high sort of esoteric subtle tantra <laughs> something like that and uh, instead the Buddha gave this teaching that uh, patience patient endurance is the highest practice for overcoming unwholesome states so that uh, this is uh, very profound that that actually sometimes we're in the midst that's the opening stanza and he talked about then the benefits of the renunciant life and then talked about um, the practice of the one that's most well known the heart of this called the Awada Padimoka the first laying out of his discipline is that to to um, to lift up that which is wholesome, to overcome the unwholesome, to purify the heart. This is the teaching of all the Buddhas. This is the most succinct way you can probably define Buddhist Dharma. But this patience, patient endurance or patience being the highest practice, the tapas, the highest practice for, for burning away that which these sankharas, which obstruct the pure, pristine heart, in, in its uh, radiancy, in its peace, in its clarity, and it's uh, like a Mr. Mandela. I remember when we saw him when he first, when we were first came to this country in '94, and then we went back to London to get our um, to go through the process of getting our residency, South Africa house, and then uh, around the same time, Mr. Mandela was being fated, if you remember, all around the world, and the Queen and. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Parliament and so on and we happened to be in London around the same time and South Africa House is this really grey dull colonial building and smack in the middle of Trafalgar Square and, was, and that day I remember so vividly they had the big new uh, South African flags unfurled in front of the building huge and so they were flapping in the wind these incredible colorful flags and then all the pigeons were just sort of going around in the in the square and there were thousands of people thousands of people and St. Martin of the Fields the bells were just tolling tolling so it was a euphoria in London and then Mr. Mandela came out on the balcony of this building that had been such a sort of heavy thing <laughs> 
and it was like transformed into this colourful thing and he just came out and he just screamed across we didn't actually scream but the magnificent regal voice he had he just said to the people were holding up their babies you know like <laughs> and they were going wild it's like a rock star <coughs> like everyone was just kind of yelling at him and he just said I love you all I love you all and you really felt it you know every individual felt it was true he knew how to love you all and I will take you all back to South Africa in my pockets. <laughs> and they said, well, we're going. <laughs> we're on our way. <laughs> uh, so, you know, that, uh, that uh, amazing ability to uh, transform through this, uh, you know, this patient, this patient, but it's a process, this patient to, to, to burn away that which obstructs to the point where I love you all is not just an idealistic wish that we have, but is a reality, a lived reality, in, in spite of the hatred, in spite of the betrayals, in spite of the complete and utter madness of what's going down on our planet. You know, it could be I hate you all, and certainly you can feel that. I despise you all, I judge you all. But really the pinnacle of all of these great teachers, including the Buddha, is that actually where we have to grow to, where we're encouraged to grow to, is I love you all. Because this is our nature. You know, and the sankharas are burnt away. Is that what's uh, left? As he said in the Dadi Ching, the, the kindness of a grandmother. Mm. Seen it all and still can be kind, can still be patient. So we, we must be very patient with ourselves and what we're experiencing. And, you know, as Ajahn Chah would say, don't try and have. A ten wheeler. Don't pretend to have a ten wheeler truck when you've got a wheelbarrow. You know? <laughs> it's like you know. So we're working with our hindrances. That's okay. We're not a Mr. Mandela. We're, you know, Joe Bloggs just doing our thing. And, you know, and little by little, this uh, being with these patternings, as we bring awareness to them and investigation and mindfulness, the power of them begins to fade. This is the power of the, this practice and the patience and the inquiry. And so one day you realize something gets triggered, some old thing or someone does something that would once before have inflamed you and got you spinning out to all sorts of upset and you realize it doesn't bother you so much in the same way. Or even someone that has been an enemy that you realize, you start to realize, well, maybe they have problems too. <laughs> and think a bit more kindly. So, yeah, so... Uh,
So I, th- I think I'll finish just with a little uh, reading here from the from our book, The Listening to the Hearts, about this process. Meditation and therapeutic work by making the unconscious conscious reveal our deeper wounds and enable healing. A small trigger can be all that's needed to dive into painful sankara, our primary patterning. In my own healing, a small event triggered a process that began to turn the tide. It was a silly incident. A disagreement between Kirisara and myself about how much to tip a waiter at a restaurant. We were at a beach resort taking a break from a difficult dynamic in our work in South Africa. I was already under a lot of stress and susceptible to reactivity. This small incident and the overall stress we were under catalyzed by my deeper issues around security, placement and belonging which in turn activated a familiar whirlpool of confusing feelings, triggering my default defense to disassociation. One of our most primitive defense mechanisms is to freeze. When we feel under threat, our instinctive reactions are to fight, flee or freeze. These reactions pull us out of our parasympathetic nervous system which regulates deeper rhythms of calm, digestion, rest and relaxation. The sympathetic nervous system on the other hand activates in response to threat. When it does we are pulled into survival mode. For many in our stressed world, it is becoming harder to drop out of the sympathetic activation back into the parasympathetic so it can regulate our system. When whole societies are threatened or feel threatened, as is the ongoing, for example, red alerts in the height of the terrorist narrative in the US and elsewhere, we are pulled into heightened sympathetic response which means we are in the least optimum mode for wise response. If we are reacting to an immediate life threat, instinctual response can be good. However, we don't always want to be in that mode, as it can lead to overreaction, creating more problems. Also, over time, our system will become depleted and stressed if we are always on high alert. When we move into freeze mode, it's hard to think coherently. Basically, our system is in shock, so we begin to disconnect from our experience. Over the years, I've experienced this mechanism as a chemical reaction that affects the brain. This response, common for many people, aims to protect us by shutting down our system. It's a survival strategy. When conflict can't be managed or emotional reactions threaten the fragile cohesion of the self, The natural intelligence of the system is to disassociate. Disassociation takes us out of the body and scrambles the brain. Clarity of thought diminishes and the capacity to respond coherently or effectively shuts down. 
As we become more adept at mindfulness, we can slow that reactivity and turn it around to appropriate response. However, the process of this kind of transformation is just that. It's a process. We don't always catch ourselves before spiraling into reactivity. Once activated, layers of painful feelings and discordant voices slice away at any sense of congruence, trust and well-being. That evening at the beach resort, I knew I was in irrational territory. I was touching into the deeper matrix of the self-structure, which forms basic patterns of survival at a very young age, when we develop primitive reactions to pleasure and pain. That night, my primary defences were triggered. However, I was at a place in my practice where I had enough mindfulness to track the process as I entered one of the deepest wounds, the belief that no one is there for us. The feeling is like the howl of a lonely wolf as it falls through thin ice into freezing and unforgiving water. Actually, it was nighttime by the Indian Ocean. It was warm and balmy, and I was with someone I loved and cherished, and certainly everything was okay. However, as I started to be consumed by this vortex of old conditioning, I felt the freeze of increasing isolation, as if moving into colder and colder water. Looking out into the pitch-dark ocean, I felt a strong pull to walk into it, even though I knew there were sharks there. At the depth of this wound was the movement towards complete annihilation. But as I understand it, this innate intention towards death, a wish for suicide, didn't surface until I had enough mindfulness to feel its utter desolation. A desolation that offers no redemption, no mercy, nothing can get through. It is anger turned to ice. It is utter aloneness and icy blackness which consumes all last vestiges of warmth, hope, light, self-love and well-being. My training in mindful awareness enabled me to hold steady at the edge of a great darkness into which poured all the wounds we had encountered in South Africa. The impossibility of poverty, the complexity of racism, the overwhelming consequences of AIDS, the most devastating betrayals of trust, it was as if a trap door had opened, letting all the orphans tumble in, the wounded, the marginalised, the lonely and the abandoned. The Hungarian poet Janusz Polinski, who witnessed the horrors of Nazi concentration camps, wrote a haunting poem. It talks about the vulnerable self-child hoping for love, but abandoned to death. This is our own self-child, but also the hopeful self-child of all beings who must inevitably meet the agony of samsara. This is the poem. Once upon a time, there was a lonely wolf, lonelier than the angels. He happened to come to a village where he fell in love with the first house he saw. Already he loved its walls, the caresses of its bricklayers, but the window stopped him. In the room sat people. 
Apart from God, nobody ever found them so beautiful as this childlike beast. So at night he went into the house. He stopped in the middle of the room and never moved from there anymore. He stood all through the night and with wide eyes and on into the morning when he was beaten to death. There are good reasons to disassociate from the harshness of life. We hope our spirituality or New Age idealism can wrap us in cotton wool and protect us. But alas, awakening demands a more truthful passage through life. Fortunately, it's a journey we can only take with the support and love of others. My ability to stay with the process that night by the Indian Ocean was made possible by the loving presence of my dearest husband and partner, Kitty Saro as he sat beside me holding my hand. The loving presence of another, particularly when there is no judgment, can be vital in our ability to negotiate these dark and difficult territories. Perhaps this is the deepest meaning of Sangha, or spiritual friendship, not only to inspire one another, but to be there for one another in moments of utter darkness and and then there to shine a light. When our wounds are received with loving kindness, the possibility of redemption and healing does indeed emerge. That night by the ocean, when Kirisara came to hold my hand, as we just sat quietly together, that simple touch helped me track back from the edge of obliteration. It is here that we understand the value of what we truly offer to one another as humans, the holding of a hand at times of pain and loss is worth more than a conquering army. As we uh, continue our practice here on this retreat, uh, we can um, hold our hand to ourself, compassion, all the parts of ourself uh, to each other as we support each other in this uh, rich and deep and beautiful silence. And also, of course, each of us uh, holds a world, many worlds, uh, and between us, the world. And we can hold that uh, also with uh, compassion. And even if we can't uh, feel any compassion, just actually to be here and to be witness to and to be aware of the processes that we are, uh, for whatever mysterious reason we have uh, to go through, is in and of itself a great act of compassion and patience. Patience is, uh, is not the patience to demand that something goes quickly, but it is the, the humble patience of the, of, the, of the heart that's willing, as the Bodhisattva is willing uh, to be here with each moment of the unfolding of our being for as long as it takes. <coughs> 